0: And now, Father, as we gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd be honored. I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that you would accomplish all of your kingdom purposes in each of our lives and for this body here at Living Water, too, Lord. Accomplish all of your purposes. Be glorified. Do your work of teaching. Admonition, encouragement, exhortation, rebuke if necessary. And we ask all of these things in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, Emily and I are happy to be here. Uh-huh, the pegs come out of here. Good. <laughs> we are really excited and thankful to be back at Living Water. Um, you have been a a real support church for us over the years. I think it's been almost 16 years that you've been standing with us, and many more years before that, really. Some of you have, been, have known me for a lot longer than that. Some of you know me since I was a child, right? And we are so, especially my parents, they've known me since I was really young, and <laughs> my, my brother's here, and, and, uh, but we're just really thankful. You have been such a, a body that stood with us over all of these years. Particularly when I think of Living Water, I think of you as as one of, the, one of the great bodies that really helped me through that time of transition in 2012 when Beverly went to be with Jesus very suddenly. And you, in many ways, many in this body stood with us. You, you were a champion for me during that time of, of trial and, and pain and sorrow and loss. And you were a champion for my new marriage to Emily, who's with me here this morning. And it's always a hard thing, When we lose a spouse and remarry, there's a lot we're not going to talk about that. But you, as a church, (laughs) came behind me very much and were such a support to us in our marriage. You celebrated our marriage uh, together with us, and for that we're very grateful. You've supported us for these many years. You've stood with us in prayer through all of the many different trials and tribulations that we found ourselves in in various countries of the Middle East. And we just thank you for that. It's so good to see so many of you. I'm so happy to see John CV here, most of all. I mean, we've been praying for him an awful lot the last few months, especially a few weeks, very intensely. And how wonderful to see him here. Amen. This morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul calls together those Ephesian elders. And afterwards, we'll be sharing the um, PowerPoint afterwards, which will give an update of why we're here and not in Lebanon right now and what we left behind by the grace of God in Lebanon right now, which is really exciting. The Church of Jesus Christ in an Islamic community that just five years ago had nothing. There is now a church made up of Muslim background believers in Jesus Christ Amen. who have repented of their sins, and been baptized, and now follow Jesus Christ as their risen Savior and Lord, entire South Lebanon. Amen. We'll tell you about that later, but it'll kind of come into this message because this is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20, speaking to those Ephesian elders, those people that he had lived three years amongst. He lived in Ephesus for three years as a missionary. Paul was a missionary. Don't forget that. He was a theologian, but he was also a missionary. Interesting that the greatest theologian of the church is also the greatest missionary of the church. But the apostle Paul spent three years in Ephesus teaching the gospel. Acts chapter 19, if we had the time, I would have read all of that. It's a very long chapter. I would encourage you to read all of Acts chapter 19. That's where you find out what was really going on in Ephesus. Paul had often wanted to go there. It was in his third missionary journey that he finally got to Ephesus, and he spent most of his time there. It was a very famous and important city in the ancient Near East. It was right up there with Roman Athens. It, was a, it, had, it had one of the greatest wonders of the world. One of the seven wonders of the world was the temple to Artemis. It took 100 years to build that temple. It had 127 massive columns in it, 60 feet tall. There was nothing like it in the ancient world. It was four times larger than any other building in, excuse me, four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens and the single largest building in all of the ancient world. Nothing ever came close to it and rivaling its spectacle. Supposedly, the goddess Artemis, or Diana, I think in Latin, fell out of the sky a 100 years previous, just as is. A very ugly black <laughs> goddess supposedly fell out of the sky, and that really became the, the, the reigning religion of the ancient Near East, of Asia Minor. It was the unparalleled, up to that point, uh, religion of ancient Minor. It was initially a god, the goddess of hunt, but then she turned into the goddess of fertility like so many other gods of the ancient world did. And along with that came all the immorality that goes along with that, with thousands of temple prostitutes and cult prostitutes, and all the wickedness that goes along with it. If you read uh, Acts chapter 19, you'll see that that was a city filled with demonic activity. So much so that the the, the apostle Paul was involved in much demonic exorcism from people's lives. We know that there was significant amount of magic arts people gave themselves over to, to sorcery and incantations but we're told in in um, in acts chapter 19 that god was doing excuse me 19:11 that god was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of paul and many of the sick were being healed and many of the evil spirits were being cast out and many of these people were believing and we're told in acts chapter 19 verse 18 that many of those who, who did believe came to paul confessing and divul- divulging their practices bringing with them Their books, 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books, and taking those books and publicly in front of this massive temple in the city center, burning their books by the thousands. 50,000 pieces of silver in their day and age would have been five to 10 million dollars worth of witchcraft and sorcery books burned in downtown Vancouver or Portland, Pioneer Square. Imagine what that would do coming, confessing Jesus as Lord and divulging their practices and their wicked worship. <clears throat> We're told in verse 20, so the word of the Lord, that is of Acts chapter 19, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It increased and prevailed mightily in this wicked city that before Paul came, there was no believers at all. All that suddenly changed in verse Verse 23, approximately, when we're told that no little disturbance began to happen. When Demetrius, the chairman of the Silver Guild, those who made the little idols that you could hang around your neck or hang on your arm, your bracelet, or put on your chariot so that you don't run over kids or something like that, (laughs) that Demetrius, along with all of the other silversmiths, got together and they started to, to complain about the impact that the gospel was having upon their pagan ungodly worship services. People were being saved, and it was making a massive dent into the silversmith idol industry of Ephesus. And so they got frazzled up and rised up, and they came together, and the whole city came into an uproar. And they grabbed uh, Gaius and uh, Aristochus, two of Paul's missionary companions, and threw them into the theater with a crowd that was going crazy by the thousands chanting for two hours straight, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Have you ever been in a situation? I have, have you? Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. With hundreds going crazy around you. Have you- I- I'll never forget, back in Egypt when I first started, well, it was, towards the end of my t- it was really towards the end of my time in Egypt because it was what led to the end of my time in Egypt when three of my co-workers, missionaries in the same uh, neighborhood with me, had begun to share the gospel with the son of a very influential sheikh, a very influential imam, sheikh, imam, religious leader. And as the word got out, craziness went around the community, to the point of which my three co-workers were quickly arrested and thrown into jail. For what? Sharing the gospel with the son of the sheikh. When I went to, while they were in jail, it was my job, because they were on my team, I was responsible for them. So <laughs> I had to go to their house. I realized these guys are not going to get out of jail and remain in Egypt, so I wanted to get, get their supplies together in their house, and as I went to their house, the whole neighborhood converged on me, yelling at me, cursing at me, swearing at me, getting crazy. There was one lady who literally was in a demonic, unquestionably satanic, demonic fit, cursing and swearing at me. If She was, she was like 90 But if she was any younger, my life could have been in danger. (laughs) But the point is, people get crazy when you touch their idols. Excuse me, a little thirsty here. People get crazy when you touch their idols. And that's how we see see this a lot in our world, do do we not? We see it all around us, even in our own country. I don't know if you noticed the, and saw the Texas heartbeat law a few months, a few weeks ago, really, when suddenly (laughs) there was this law that was passed to, to save human life, and yet there was this frenzy, this media frenzy, parades and opposition, and people came out in mass protesting, calling other people haters and people who were hateful, and who came to their aid but the church of Satan for crying out loud not much different than the goddess Artemis, saying to all peoples, and the media p- p- published this, that it was the spiritual duty of, of us, this, the church of Satan, to actually get impregnated and then to have abortions. That's part of this secular worldview in which we live in today. Suddenly, people are all upset. We can't kill babies in mass like we used to do. I've actually heard that Abortions have been stopped by 90% in Texas since that bill has came into to action. 90%. Hundreds of doctors and nurses have lost their income. And clinics are supposed to be closing down. There's supposed to be a court case tomorrow. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And I'm not saying that this is necessarily the gospel. I'm not saying that at all. Please don't misunderstand me. But these are good and godly and holy laws that are being enacted to save lives. This is what government should do, right? Protect and reward the good and punish the evil. So anyways, whenever you touch the idols of wealth or the idols of convenience or the idols of child sacrifice, expect a kickback. And we see that throughout all of the Middle East, by the way, all throughout the whole world, throughout the history of, this, of Christianity for the last 2,000 years. As the gospel goes forward into communities, it does make an impact in the society in which you're there. It will radically change the societies in which it goes into. It will bring a revival of God's grace into those communities. So now to go to the actual text that we're in, Acts chapter 20, that's a little bit of the background. A year and a half previous to this encounter on the, the port of Miletus, the apostle Paul had to leave Ephesus because of all that chaos, because of all of the uh, activity that happened there in the theater, he had to leave. Now he's on his way back to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20. We'll start in verse 17. The events of our text here take place somewhere between April 29th and May 2nd of A.D. 57. We actually can know that because he is actually on his way to Pentecost, and we know what year that is. That's also A.D. 57, and Pentecost that year fell on May 27th, and he's about three weeks out into Miletus from Jerusalem, down there in Israel. So he's on the way there. It's about a year and a half after he was in Ephesus. He's in a rush to get there. He's only got three weeks left. So he calls the Ephesian elders to him, which is about Ephesus is about 62 miles north, a little bit inland. But he knows, as a missionary who's lived there for three years, he can't go back to Ephesus just for one night. Because they'd all be saying, come to my house, come have dinner with me, Paul. Uh, You know, don't leave, stay a little longer. No, no, no. He knows he has to for some reason. The apostle Paul is compelled by his spirit to be in Jerusalem by May 27th. And we know from the text later on in Acts that he actually will be there. So he's going to call these Ephesian elders and he's going to say goodbye to them. He's going to say goodbye to them. He's going to say goodbye for the very last time. In fact, the verse that we didn't we stopped at, we stopped at verse 24 in the reading that Joshua gave. But the verse 25 right afterwards says, "And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again." Paul knows he will never see them again. He tells them that flat out, "You will never see my face again." And so Paul here is revealing his heart to them. He's called them together. He's worked closely with these guys. Now he's going to pour out his heart to them and tell him very important things to him. Because when you know you're never going to see somebody ever again or a group of people, you will never see them ever again. You say important things. You say the things that are very heavy, very important, very concerning on your heart. And that's what the apostle Paul is doing here. He's going to reveal to them his missionary heart. is going to reveal to them four key principles of how he did missions, how he did missions amongst them. First, in verse 17, he'll talk about the mission of a missionary. And then in verse uh, 18 through 20, he'll talk about, about the manner of a missionary, how he lived amongst them. In verses 21, he'll talk about the message of the missionary. And then finally, in verses 22 through 24, the motivation of a missionary, what keeps us going. So let's start off with the first one. The mission of a missionary in verse 17 he says now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called <clears throat> he called the elders of the church to come to him stop right there. Again, put yourself in missionary shoes. <laughs> put yourself in pioneer missionary shoes. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to a place that has no gospel witness? No church? And then learned their language, learned their culture, ate their foods, lived in their houses, interacted with them, shared your life with them, shared the gospel with them, day in and day out. Paul will later on say, you guys, you Ephesian elders, you know how I was with you for three years sharing everything that you needed to know. With my tears, you know that. Um, uh, he was living their life amongst them. He calls these people to come to him. It's pretty amazing. Think about it there are now elders. Four and a half years ago, there were no Christians. There were no believers. There was no church. There was no flock of the Lord Jesus Christ to shepherd and oversee, as he will later on tell them in the other part of this chapter. There was nothing there. There were no elders. Now there's a church. (laughs) Now there's a flock for them. These elders, plural, elders, plural, to oversee and shepherd. There's a work, there's a task for them. This is a very important thing. This is a rejoicing thing. Put your, again, put yourself in missionary shoes. Amen. Hallelujah. Mission accomplished. Church planted. Move on to the next city. This is a really exciting thing for missionaries. This is the goal. This is what we, this is what we do. <clears throat> Missions uh, is, is the focus. Schools are good. Hospitals are great. Orphanages are wonderful. Those are good works that supplement and go along with our gospel presentation, but they're never to be the focus for missions and missionaries. It's the church of Jesus Christ. That's always the long-term goal, the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ in XYZ city, country, or territory, people group. That's always the goal. The missions of the missionary is ultimately the planting of the church. The goal of of the missionary endeavor is to see the gospel brought to a people group so they can understand it, hear it, Perceive it, receive it, be baptized, take the Lord's Supper together, and then come together as the body of Jesus Christ so that they can be taught and to observe all of the other things that I have commanded them, Jesus would say at the very end of the Great Commission, right? Amen. Amen. That's the objective. That's the goal. You can't, you know, a lot of times in missions we focus upon the disciple, which is true. There must be a disciple. You must go. (laughs) We had to find a believer to begin with in the city of Tyre. And the Lord brought individual believers together, one by one. But very quickly, we brought them together to become and begin to live out the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in that community. So this is the goal. This is exactly what the, great, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul did. You see, the church is what these people have been... Paul is now telling these people that they have been called to oversee. If you have your Bibles open to, uh, excuse me, open to the other parts of chapter 20 here, Excuse me. I was hoping that we'd read the rest all the way to the end of the chapter for context, but we didn't get to that. So I'll just have to allude to a couple of things here. Later on, Paul will say to these people, in verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Uh, therefore I testify to you to this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Then this very strong exhortation to these elders, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And then he goes on to warn them about dangers that will be coming, that will for sure be coming into the church. But notice there, he tells these Ephesian elders, you our elders primarily to oversee this flock to oversee this flock this is the church that jesus christ shed his blood for it's the church of jesus christ that is the bride of christ it's the church that is the body of christ it's the church to which jesus granted the keys of the kingdom in matthew chapter 16 verse 19 it's a church it's the church alone that is the pillar and buttress of truth paul would tell timothy and 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 15. It's the church alone that is the pillar and buttress of truth because we, the church of Jesus Christ, has the gospel of the truth of God. That's what we have. We are the pillar and buttress of truth. And in a world filled with lies, in a world filled with lies, lies all around us, what do we need? But the truth of the Lord God Almighty, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel and the church, we are the ones who contain and hold that truth. Not the government. Not the public school system. They don't have the truth. We have the very truth of the word of the living God. We know what is true. And so if I have to call somebody by a different pronoun other than what is true... God created them male and female. Male and female, He created them. That's the truth of God. It may go contrary to the truth of the public school system, but this is the truth. That is not the truth. We live in a world of lies. Having lived in the Islamic Middle East for 34 years, I heard lies constantly, five times a day, every single day. Never once did it stop. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Um, <laughs> I can say it in Arabic, not in English. It will make sense to you guys in Arabic. But uh, there is only one God. Uh, come to prayer. Come to success. Come to prayer. Uh, there is only one God. Muhammad is his prophet. You hear that blurted and yelled out five times a day across the whole city by minarets, loudspeakers? Lies, 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 lies. lies. Our media sends out lies. Our government sends out lies. Even possibly our medical establishments, medical establishments can send out lies. This is the truth of the word of God. That's why Paul could write to the Ephesian church, now to him who's able to do, that's the very church that he's writing to, now to him in verse, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. To him be glory in the church to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever amen the church brings glory to god in a very special and unique way like nothing else on this world in this world does and again sadly today a lot of missions can be distracted by secondary things but the goal of missions always needs to be the planting and the establishment of of the church of Jesus Christ in these communities and that does require a long-term goal planning, and work. You have to learn the language. You have to learn the culture. You have to get into the people and develop trust and and live your life amongst them. This doesn't just happen overnight. This doesn't just happen overnight. And there's still a great need for long-term missionaries, even today in our world. There are people groups still yet to be reached. We did leave a church behind in the city of Tyre for... Sunni Arab Shiite Muslims. I'm sorry, Sunni Arab Arab Syrian Muslims. Not for the Lebanese Shiite Muslims, and they're very different. They're a different people group. They have a different culture. They have a different background. Yes, they can come together in the body of Christ, but generally speaking, it's good for each people group to have a church for themselves. And so after 34 years, by the grace of God, and it wasn't all in the city of Tyre, obviously not, but it was a 34-year year process for me to get the Arabic language, to kind of acquire and love the Islamic Arabic culture, and live in a situation long enough, by the grace of God, without being kicked out or arrested or ran out, and a witness that has developed and earned the trust of local people to see the church of Jesus Christ established in a community. And that is what all good missionaries are seeking to do. Every good missionary should ultimately be working himself out of a job. And that's not an easy thing. It is. It's not easy. Because you learn to love these people. You learn to be with these people. You enjoy them. Paul lived life with them in their houses, out of their houses for three years straight. It's not easy to say goodbye. Look at the last verse in Acts chapter 20. Look at the last verse there. As he's closing up his speech to them. And when he had said these things, verse 36. He knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. These people loved the apostle Paul, and Paul loved these people. He had given him, them his life, and they had given their lives to him too. There was a deep bond that was developed between these people. And you can see that exhibited there with their hugging and their weeping and their crying as they say goodbye to each other. But again, as we see, this is the objective. This is the goal. This is what ultimately missions is about, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And that takes the church. That takes the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that, and that's why Paul is, in one sense, handing off the baton to these Ephesian elders as he says goodbye to them. So that's the goal. That's the mission. That's what we're ultimately shooting for in missions today, ever since that time until today. In verse 18 to 20, we have the manner of a missionary, the manner, how how the apostle Paul was amongst them. Notice what he says in verse 18. Verse 18. And you yourselves know how I lived amongst you. you. You yourselves know how I lived amongst you. He's going to appeal to this three different times in Acts chapter 20 to these Ephesian elders. You'll see it in verse 34 and verse 35 as well. He's going to appeal to the fact, you guys who I love, you know how I lived amongst you. You know my life. He's going to say a couple key things to them. Excuse me. He's going to tell them about his He's going to tell them about his tears, about his toils, about the fact that they know his teaching, that they know how he was and lived in teamwork. He's going to appeal to the fact that you, Ephesian elders, you know how I lived amongst you. You know that I incarnated this gospel amongst you. I lived it out in your homes, in your streets, publicly, privately, and together. Notice the five different ways in which this text will describe his manner of life amongst them. First off, he says, you know how I was serving the Lord with all humility. That's the very first thing he says. You guys know, you Ephesian elders know how I came to you serving the Lord in all humility. That's the first point of his service. It's not to them. It's not to the Ephesians. It's not to the temple prostitutes. It's to the Lord Jesus Christ to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very important for us to understand that you cannot spiritually do any real value to anyone else, either in Living Water Church or entire Lebanon until you firstly see all of your service as to the Lord Jesus Christ firstly and foremostly. You are his servant and everything you do, you do it as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. If you elder and oversee, you elder and oversee as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. If you serve coffee or tea, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you serve it to the Lord Jesus Christ in his name, firstly and foremostly. If you do it for any other things, you're looking for a thank you or a reward or an attaboy or something like that, and you have your reward. But all of our work and all of our service is firstly and foremostly in humility to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said. But not only that, notice also his tears. Secondly, his tears. You saw my tears. He will actually tell these People here in verse, the Ephesian elders, he'll say in verse 31, Therefore be alert. Therefore be alert, you elders. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish every one of you with tears. With tears. The Apostle Paul says, you guys know how I cared for you. You know how I loved you. You know how I warned you guys with tears. And in other places... In the scriptures, we know that the Apostle Paul wept for the lost. We know that the Apostle Paul wept for weak Christians who were failing in their faith. We even know that the Apostle Paul wept for the enemies of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was a man who preached with his heart, and he wept for the state often which he found people in or the church in. I think as we even consider our lives today, where we're at? How are your tears? How are your tears for the lost around you? <laughs> How are your tears for weak weakness in the church of Jesus Christ? Are there tears? I think the American church needs a revival. I think the American church needs a revival, a touch of the Holy Spirit of God in powerful ways. And one of the ways that will affect us, or even partly come, is through a weeping, praying church that cares for the lost. And failure in your own life, too. Paul didn't just weep because of the weak. He did weep for other weak Christians, but he also weeped for failure in his own life, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. You know my tears, guys. You Ephesian elders, you know my tears. For three years, you saw me. You saw me praying for that lost Demetrius. You saw me working for a week, so and so. Do you have tears for what's happening in our church? Worldliness in the church? Compromise in the church? A lack of care? A Laodicean spirit in the church? Apostasy in the church? These are reasons to cry. These are reasons to weep. Not only that, Paul says, Thirdly, you've seen my trials. You've seen my trials, you guys. You've seen how I was beat up in that city. You saw how I was left for dead in that city. You saw me try and go into the theater to rescue Gaius and Aristochus, and you all pulled me out of there because you knew if I went into that Roman theater, I'd be killed too. So you've seen my trials. You saw what the Jews did to me and the plots of the Jews against me, he would say. You've seen all of that. You've you've seen the slander and the lies that the Jewish um, uh, super apostles would say that they were better than me and they slandered me. You've seen all of those things. I think it's very important for the people we live amongst to see our trials. It's very important. I know myself, I never wanted to be arrested. I never wanted to be ran out of that neighborhood. I never wanted to be kicked out of that country. I didn't want any of those things. I would have preferred to have it done in a different way. But it's very interesting now, as we left behind a church in the city of Tyre, the elder that we laid our hands on by the grace of God to become the elder is getting consistent death threats to his wife and to his daughters. He has for over a year. So it's, I'm not, I don't go to him and say, well, I can relate, you know, it's one to one. I can't say that. But it is really important that I can say to him, yes, Yasser, I know, I understand the fear. I've been there. Yes, Yasser, I know, I understand the concern of being arrested. I actually had that happen to me too. So in one sense, the Apostle Paul is saying, you know how I lived amongst you. You've seen my trials. It's very important for them to understand that and see that. By the grace of God, most Arabs understand that if an American comes to the Middle East and learns Arabic, it must mean he has a desire to to show some kind of love to them because Arabic is such a hard language and they know that. You're saying, by learning the language, I have a desire to reach out to you. I have a care for you. I have a love for you. And it's very important for people to see that. Sometimes People will see the beauty and the value of the gospel that we are communicating by the very costs that it involves in the missionary to take that message to them. And they will see that. Notice also that he, his teaching, so we have his tears, his trials, and his teaching. Fourthly, Paul said, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you public, uh, in public and from house to house. And then testifying. Paul taught with boldness, and he gave them an example of teaching with boldness. One of the exciting things is the deacon that we left behind in the city of Tyre. He's a deacon. He's not the elder, but he's a deacon. But he's a Philip-style deacon who shares the gospel. When he first came to the Lord about... Four years ago, I'm going to guess, Samur. he was a very weak, very timid man. Very weak, very timid man. And he still is, in his own personal, natural self, a rather timid guy. But he's pretty much one of the main Bible study leaders we have right now, who's involved in about seven, or well, he himself, about four, or maybe five, of the various Bible studies, where he is publicly proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ as the only Savior, and in an Islamic context, with all Muslims. He was the guy that I worked a lot with primarily in the first couple years. Me teaching him and his wife uh, boldly the gospel by the grace of God. And then notice also, it's not so clear in the text, but notice fifthly, teams. So we have the tears, the trials, the teaching, but notice the teamwork here. I want to just allude to this point. It was the church in Antioch that sent out Barnabas and Paul two by two. As the first missionaries, two by two. It was the Lord Jesus Christ who sent out the disciples, the 12, two by two on a short-term missionary trip. <laughs> so there were six teams that went out, two by two. There's a principle we see here. And wherever you look in the book of Acts, you always find Paul with a missionary team around him. In fact, although you don't see it right here in the text, if you read the first part of Acts chapter 20, you'll see that Paul has arrived to Miletus with Luke and Sopater and Timothy and Gaius of Derby and Aristarchus, the two Asians. They arrive with him here to Miletus. And he will leave in a few days, a day or two, from Miletus with at least Luke and Aristarchus and Tychius and Trophimus, the two Asians, will at least be with him on the next leg of the journey. The Apostle Paul was always in a missionary team. And I want to just simply make that point and draw your attention to it as you consider missions in the future. It's good to send out missionaries as a team. It really is. Just put that in the back of your your mind and your heart and keep it in in, in there. Never. So Paul's saying here, you guys, I've alluded to this. You know how I lived amongst you. In all these different ways, through my tears, through my trials, as a team, teaching boldly. Never underestimate, my friends, the extraordinary power of your personal life and example to influence and inspire other people positively for God. Never underestimate that. Your personal life and example to influence and inspire other people positively for God. Now, verse uh, 21, we come to the third point, the message of a missionary. What is his message? What is our message to the world? And here we have probably the single most succinct statement of the call of the gospel in all of the Bible. Paul says to these Ephesian elders in verse 21, I was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks. That means it's a message for everybody. Jews and Greeks means the whole world. And I was testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Two very key concepts, repentance and faith, repentance towards God, and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if your eyes could just look down a few verses later to verse 24, he will also say that he desires to finish his course and the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So that's another important concept there. He summarizes it all up in one word as the gospel of the grace of God. The gospel of the grace of God. You can't earn it. Grace, free grace. It's not by works of righteousness, but by his grace alone that we're saved. He summarizes that as the gospel of the grace of God. This is what I taught repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the essentials. You know that for three years, you guys, I was with you, giving you this single great important message. It's for all the world to know, whether you're a Jew in Ephesus or a cult priestess of the temple of Artemis. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a message of repentance, a call for everyone to turn to confess their sins as the magicians did and divulge their practices as the people who did witchcraft in the city did and take your books and burn it. Repentance, turn, confess, and turn from to God. Repentance and then put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only sacrifice that makes you right with God. In many other places throughout the whole New Testament this is the message, right? It's obviously taught all over. I think of those words in Romans chapter 10 verse 10 when Peter when Paul would say if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus uh, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart One believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That is a quick summary of the call, right? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. He is your substitutionary sacrifice for all of your sin. And you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ be on behalf of God be reconciled to Christ. On behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sakes, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. And that is the gospel that Paul was preaching. That's the gospel he was teaching. That's the message he had for three years in the Ephesian community. That's the message he had in all the churches. And that's the single message that we, to this very day, have. That's the only message we have. Again, it's easy in missions to get mixed up and and, and all messed up in different secondary things. Like... Things that are that are good may be useful in their place, but not the primary focus. The primary task of the missionary is to bring the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to this community, to that place. And these truths should mark our lives, not just one time, but all the times, right? As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you, Christian, receive Christ Jesus as Lord? I trust it was through repentance and turning from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep doing that to the last day of your life. Keep walking in repentance, right? What did Jesus mean when he said, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, but a life of repentance? What did the Apostle Paul mean when he said, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith and not by sight. This principle of walking by faith should mark our lives all the time. So this is also a message to be taught. It's a message to be taught, declared, testified to, and proclaimed. Again, this is what the church is to be doing. And again, even in missions, this is always under attack. There's a whole movement today in missions to get the missionary to stop proclaiming. There really is. It's the missionary's job to simply facilitate so that they can discover. We actually have seen the damage that this can do on the field right in our own city. But no, 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 no. <laughs> no. That's not the example from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul taught. He preached. He proclaimed. He declared. He testified. And so should every missionary ever since and continue on doing that. It's important for us to keep this whole concept As the priority of preaching and proclaiming the gospel. Everything else is secondary. We have one, I'm aware of a situation where somebody has changed out the gospel for psychology. And again, there's a place for psychology. There's a place for trauma counseling. But the greatest counseling for a trauma victim is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The absolute greatest counseling. And if you ever get the the cart in front of the horse, you have a big problem. You have a big problem. And we've seen the danger that that can do. In all of our work, we had, a, we had another man who emphasized friendship evangelism. Again, if you're going to evangelize, you should be friendly. Don't get me wrong. You should always be a friendly type guy <laughs> if you're going to evangelize. But if you put the cart in front of the horse, you have problems. He so overemphasized the friendship evangelism that he brought in young Muslim Shiite boys to his house and gave them vodka for parties because Jesus is the friend of sinners. That's not the way we should go. We have a gospel to preach, a gospel with very clear parameters, a call to repentance for all mankind. Repent and turn in faith and trust to the Lord Jesus Christ, your sacrifice. And then lastly, we come to the motivation, the motivation of a missionary, the motivation of a missionary. And there's two things here, verse 22 and following, 22 through 24. So it's the final thing, but there's two points. So gonna go a little further, but <laughs> there's two things. The missionary, and really this is true for all believers, but is very much a, is a person led and motivated by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Look at what Paul says here in verse um, 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. And that word constrained is very unique. It's the same word used of the apostle Peter when he was in jail in Acts chapter 12. Constrained with two chains between two soldiers. Constrained, bound compelled, forced almost, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. The Apostle Paul knows, has a clear sense, a clear leading from the Spirit of God, that he is to go to Jerusalem. And by the way, we see this a lot. One of the the exciting things about missions is that you actually are. We are led of the Lord. I could tell you story after story after story of how the Lord led me to countries and led me to cities in those countries and led me to the exact street and city in which I should be in, the exact house even in some situations. A sense of my first, after two years in Egypt, before I married Beverly, I had studied Arabic for two years, but I I thought I had mastered the Arabic language. (laughs) What a fool I was at the time, but... I had a real sense of I should go to northern Sudan. Our team had a relationship with another small team in northern Sudan, and they were looking for some other people, and I had a sense that I should go. I should just go. I had a compelling and compulsion in my spirit a leading to go to northern Sudan. That was the Arabic part of Sudan. that, that They speak Arabic there. And so I went. I'll never forget. As I was in the market of the city of Dongola, northern Sudan, I'm in the market with a few other local believers who are sharing the gospel. Again, there's no church there. I get a tap on my shoulder and a man says to me, are you with this group? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm with this group. And, and they said, well, he said, would you please come to my house? I have some questions for you. So I told the team leader, I said, well, I'm going to go to this guy's house. And it ended up I was there for three days and two nights. As this man brought me breakfast and asked me questions about Jesus Christ. Brought me lunch and said, did Jesus really come from God or was he just a normal prophet? And then he brought me dinner. Did Jesus really die for our sins? And if so, was there really a resurrection? How could that happen? And why would he die for our sins? I thought he was a holy prophet. And on and on and on. Three days and two nights was my visit with this Nicodemus that God brought me to. And he was way out in an oasis off the Nile off the Nile River in a desert. God had his purposes and his plans. I could speak about other times that we've been led to places and... and um, I'll never forget when I was in Egypt, uh, in Jordan, I just, we had been compelled again, led of the Lord, after we were kicked out of Egypt, we were in Jordan, which is when you all began to start supporting us when we were in Jordan, and I had to find some means to be there, and I, I, my, the, 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 my, my visa a clock was ticking, and I had no, there was no way to find a, a means to stay and remain in this country. I'll never forget this. I was I went to a telephone booth. This was in the days before cell phones. <laughs> went to a telephone booth, and I called up. I think one of my uh, a friend or a coworker. I remember just saying, "Lord, we just got to find some means to stay here. We can't seem to find anything." And I I, I looked on the ground. And I was standing on a, on a newspaper, an Arabic newspaper. I was standing on this Arabic newspaper, and I. Then I saw some English words, and so I bent down and picked it up, and it said, Native English teacher wanted. Please call Ms. Chalud. So I'm in the phone. I call her up. She goes, Oh, please, get over here right now. And again, it, no missionaries were getting into this country. Call her up and come over here right now. By the evening, she's agreed to get my visa. The next day, we start the visa process, and I'm there for seven more years, by the grace of God. You know, So the Lord guides and directs. He guides his people. He leads us along. Another time I was in Jordan, I felt that evening, just I told my wife, Beverly, I said, I need, I need to leave now after dinner. I must go downtown to the amphitheater. Just the Lord laid upon my heart. There's an old Roman amphitheater. I need to go down there. And sure enough, I meet a guy that night. I go down there in the rain and whatnot, and I meet Yusuf. And Yusuf, again, just opens up and wants to know about Christ and I say, let's meet in the morning. So I meet him at 7 o'clock in the morning. Arabs don't meet that early in the morning, nothing before noon, you know. But he wanted to know. So I met him at 7 o'clock in the morning. I brought him to my house. Bev made him breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And by the end of that night, 12 hours of sharing the gospel. I mean, it was intensive sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ for 12 hours of that man We go back down to the Roman Empire, and he goes, what must I, he asked me, what must I do to be saved? I said, well, if you believe in your heart that Christ has been raised from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, he goes, in front of all these people, he goes, I believe in my heart that Jesus rose from the dead, and I confess it with my mouth. (laughs) A few days later, he was baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Lord's leading. He leads his people along, and to a certain degree, all of us are to be led of the Lord. Not always in these exact terms. We're all led. The Spirit leads us in so many different ways. I'm speaking here about just directional leading, guiding. Um, The Lord guides us through His Word. The Lord guides us through sovereign circumstances, like the newspaper on the ground. (laughs) The Lord, He's Lord over all these things. The Lord guides His people through the church and through elders and shepherds and overseers over you. He guides you through prayer. There's the guidance of the Lord through the still, small voice. And your ears will hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. There is a subjective element to the leading of His spirit. We don't deny that, but that subjective element is always subjected to the word of God and the whole counsel of the word of God. And then lastly, it was very interesting as well if you think here, if you look very carefully at the Apostle Paul in Ephesus, he wanted to go to Ephesus on the second missionary journey. But we're told that the spirit of Jesus forbid him from going into Asia Minor at that time, which was basically Ephesus. But he wanted to go there. And then on the third missionary journey, the Lord opened up an amazing door for him to go to Ephesus. And now the Lord is closing the door and calling him out of Ephesus. Ephesus. And that is, again, a principle that you see in missions all throughout. And then lastly, we have this, as we talk about the motivation of a missionary, we have this priority of the gospel in verse 24. This priority of the gospel. Here in verse 24, the Apostle Paul says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, nor is dear to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's as though the Apostle Paul takes up two things and says, hmm, on the one hand, there's my life and all the dearness and the preciousness and the wonder of this life that I have and the good things that go along with this life. And on the other hand is this Race, this finishing the course that I have for me. to. And the word here, course, is used only a few times in, in, the, in the New Testament. It's used figuratively of the course of the race of our whole lives. It's used like when Paul would say in Second Timothy verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 7 to, to Timothy, he would say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race that is the course. I have kept the faith. So on the one hand is this, this dearness, this preciousness of my own life, the things that I myself may wish to live for. And then on the other hand, there is this gospel. There is this priority of the gospel, of finishing the race, of going all the way to the end, persevering all the way to the end, by the way, in not only living out the gospel, but preaching and teaching out the gospel. In my circumstances, in my life, whatever that is for Paul, for, that, for him that meant being a missionary to Asia Minor, Asia Minor and, and Macedonia and into Athens. But I desire this one. I will say that this one here is the priority. This is my big goal. Not the dearness of my life, not the care for my life, not the seeking to save my life. He knew very much the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, he will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And Paul's saying, "I want to lose my life following this gospel, living for this gospel, proclaiming and testifying this gospel with my words and with my life before people." And implied in this rice, excuse me, implied in this course is a cost. Very clearly, implied in the course is a cost and a cost. Here you see it in the chains and afflictions that he knows await him in every city. There's also implied in this ministry suffering, suffering. Paul says, I'm ready to die. And just a few, as soon as he lands in Caesarea, after he leaves Miletus, he's going to land in Caesarea. There he's going to meet Philip the evangelist and go to his house. And there Agabus the prophet's going to come and say, you're going to be arrested in Jerusalem, and you're going to be chained in Jerusalem. And Paul's going to say, why? They say, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. (laughs) And Paul's going to say, why are you guys making me cry? Why are you making me cry? Don't you know that I'm ready to die for Jesus? Don't you know that, guys? My goal is the gospel. My goal is to lift up, the, lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know, he'll tell the Philippians later on, that whether by life or by death, Jesus Christ will be honored in my body because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm ready, guys. Many times, the Apostle Paul told the saints he's willing and ready to die for Jesus. Are you? Is that your priority? America's going through a lot of changes, my friends, and I'm not saying we're in the Islamic Middle East yet, but I have been saying for many years persecution is coming to the American church. It's coming. This last 200 years experimental situation has been wonderful. And God has blessed the American church to be a missionary church. But now, persecution is coming to you. It's coming. Pastors are being arrested in Canada. And that will soon be happening here. When you say, this is the word of God, they will say that's hate. When you say God calls you to live like this, they will say, how dare you judge us? You are a hate speaker. Go to jail. It's coming, I think. <clears throat> Paul was ready to die. He was willing to die. He lived what he preached. He lived what he preached. Don't forget here, my friends, that the Apostle Paul, he is not telling them all these things so that they can write his biography. why so he's doing this. He's saying, you Ephesian elders, I love you guys. I've lived here for three years. I'm passing on the baton to you. Now take this seriously and follow my example. The Apostle Paul would write to the Philipp- Philippian church, the Colossian church, the Thessalonian church, and the Ephesian church and say to them and to the Corinthian church, the same basic words that he would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse one, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And that's a, heavy, holy, somber statement that he made. But to a degree and to a manner, all of the Lord's shepherds and overseers and leaders should say something, should be able to say something like that. Imitate me as I also follow Christ. In my frailty, in my weakness, don't imitate the bad things, but imitate me as I I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Imitate me. Paul is handing off this baton to the next generation. And he's been doing that. The church has been doing that for 2,000 years. This means, my friends, brothers and sisters, that the same mission that was the mission of the apostle Paul is your mission. It's your mission. You're called to that. We are all called to that, to the building, to the preaching of the gospel, to the making disciples that ultimately leads to the building and the planting of the church of Jesus Christ and the establishment of that. And as the Lord blesses you in this body to split and divide and do it again, possibly. (laughs) That should be the goal, the furthering of the gospel for the glory of God through his church. It is the church of Jesus Christ that brings glory to God in this world in a special way. Paul's showing love, his great love for the flock in the church here. We have the same basic message. Our message has not changed one iota from this verse here, preaching to all whether Jew or Gentile, of repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same message we have. After 2,000 years, it hasn't changed. That's the only message we have for this world. It means that you also, we also need to teach this gospel, proclaim this gospel, and flesh it out in community, from house to house, with your neighbor, maybe publicly, in a public forum, maybe in community. But in, somehow, we must flesh out, we must incarnate this gospel in our wherever we find ourselves at. You know, we have that same servant manner that the apostle Paul had, the same servant heart disposition that he had. It means that we also are all committed to faithfully running the course that he has set for you. And each one of those are different, right? Each one of those are different. For some of you, it may be that you end up going to India or Nepal for 40 years. If you're young, (laughs) if you're old, that's probably not going to (laughs) happen. But I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. For some of you, it may just be faithfully teaching right here in your community, faithfully being a Sunday school teacher in your situation. What, what an important thing. Whatever God has sovereignly ordained, again, maybe it's that you, to, 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 you reach Hindus or Buddhists, or maybe your whole life course is simply to faithfully win your unbelieving spouse to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that may take 40 years of godly, loving witness. I don't know. I don't know how the Lord has orchestrated each of our lives. He's the sovereign God. He determines the boundaries and sets goals and leads by the compulsion of His Spirit. When I first became a missionary, I had no choice in the matter. <laughs> Many of you know my story. I had no love for Arabs and no love for Muslims. In fact, I had quite the opposite. Quite the opposite at age 17. I, had the, I could actually say I had quite the opposite of love for Arabs and Muslims. I wanted to go into the military. And so at age 17, I knew that possibly a future enemy of America would be Arab Muslims. This was back in 1982 or 83, a long time ago. But the Lord worked in my heart, and he changed that. He did things. He tricked me. <laughs> he tricked me in many ways. And he laid a love for the Arab Muslim on my heart at the age of 17, to the point of which I said, I have to leave that, and I must do this. I must do that. I must learn Arabic. And so the Lord brought in 1985 an Arab Muslim to the Louisville River and got a mansion there, and I started learning Arabic on the Louisville River in 1985 in Northern Battleground. I mean, go figure. (laughs) That's the Lord. That's the Lord's work. He does these things. Maybe the Lord's called you to be a school teacher in the public school system, a local elder, a farmer. Whatever you do, do your services unto the Lord Jesus Christ. It means a willingness to serve and pray and teach and do whatever God lays upon your heart through the church to extend the kingdom of Christ. In all cases, it also means a growing love for Jesus, a growing love for the gospel. We should be growing in the grace of God, brothers and sisters, growing in the grace of God, growing in our love for Jesus, our Savior. He saved us from our sins. We have an internal inheritance that will never be taken away from us. This life is passing like that. It's going in a moment. You may not be here next week, but do you have the goal, the desire that I persevere by the grace of God, not just, just barely make it into the kingdom, but that I, preserve, I persevere on the course of preaching with my words in my life to the gospel of the grace of God? I want to go all the way to the end. And if that means this is my last breath right here, so be it. If it means that you're in the hospital by yourself alone, John found himself there, and I'm sure you prayed a lot in that hospital, John. <laughs> when they mentioned that about ICU, you probably thought, well, I see you again. <laughs> I don't know. But that we pray and plan and prepare to persevere all the way to the end, publicly, privately, with our lives, to our families, to our children, to our church, witnessing that there is no other answer for mankind except for the gospel of the grace of God. And I want to make it all the way to the end because it's the one who perseveres to the end who shall be saved. It will cost. There will be suffering. A willingness to serve. A desire to grow. An active active growth in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. These are some of the principles that made the Apostle Paul a useful missionary tool for God's glory and God's kingdom. And I pray that they'll be of encouragement to you as you press on, testifying to the gospel of the grace of God in your lives. May we all be able to say that last hymn of Charles Wesley's, that last verse of Charles Wesley's hymn, Jesus' name high over all. Jesus' name high over all. Happy if with my latest breath, that is my last breath, happy if with my latest breath, I may but gasp his name, preach him to all and cry in death, behold, behold the lamb. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word, for the truth contained therein, for the example we see fleshed out, both the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh and then the Apostle Paul who fleshed it out and lived it out as a missionary with your gospel for the sake of the kingdom. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are building your church in the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, I thank you for this body here, and I do pray that you would do and apply these words into each particular person's, each of your saints' heart, as you deem appropriate. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.